Welcome. I'm Panayota Daphniotis, and I'm your host for an intellectual property podcast series brought to you by Dentons Canada. This podcast series covers a broad range of intellectual property topics on patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related IP disputes with an emphasis on the practical, giving companies of all sizes and industries the IP intel they should be thinking about. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There, you can access all of our intellectual property podcasts as well as an episode description for each topic and information about our speakers. We are currently living in unprecedented times and we hope all of our listeners are in good health and staying positive. It is worth mentioning that we, like many of you, are working remotely and so we are recording these podcasts from our respective new home offices and we are excited to be able to do so and bring this content to our listeners. And now, over to our podcast topic and speakers. Today's episode will cover trade secret protection and enforcement in Canada. Our discussion will explore defining trade secrets, how to establish a trade secret protection program in your company, and what happens when things go wrong. With me today, we have Chloe Snyder, who is a partner in Denton's litigation and dispute resolution and transformative technologies groups. Chloe's practice focuses on complex commercial litigation and arbitration with particular expertise in information and technology disputes. Also with me today is Meredith Bacall. Meredith is a senior associate in the firm's National Intellectual Property Group and the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Groups, also located in our Toronto office. Meredith is a registered trademark agent and in her litigation practice, she represents a diverse client base on matters related to media, entertainment, technology, and defamation. As for myself, I'm Panayota Daphniotis, a partner and national lead of the intellectual property team at Dentons in Canada. I have over 20 years experience as an IP lawyer, working in all areas of IP, helping clients manage, grow, and commercialize intellectual property portfolios globally, protect their innovation, and manage IP risk. And now, over to our podcast. As businesses around the world evaluate their options for protecting valuable intellectual property in the context of today's dynamic tech environment and a highly mobile workforce, trade secret protection is an essential complement to any IP strategy and protection, including trademark protection, copyright, or patent protection. There are many reasons why there is increased reliance on trade secret protection. Those trends are the rapid technological change that companies are experiencing as they 
digitally transform and digitize their information. Increased employee mobility and changes in the workplace are really very key reasons for this trend. Trade secrets are becoming more valuable. Also, there is a bit of a debate between trade secret protection and patent protection. Although as mentioned, trade secret protection is in fact recognized as being an essential complement to other forms of IP protection. And finally, increased globalization of businesses are all reasons why we are seeing that increased reliance on trade secrets. And with that, I'd like to begin the discussion with a question to you, Chloe. I think it's really important to lay the foundation for uh, today's discussion with a clear definition on trade secrets. And so, Chloe? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Peniata, and thanks for having me on the IP podcast. When we're talking about trade secrets in Canada, what we're generally talking about is confidential information, which is protected at common law. When we talk about confidential information, we're talking about information that's secret, that's not generally known, and that has value as a result of this confidentiality or secrecy. And this type of information can really fall into two different categories at a high level. One is financial, so think of margins, pricing, business plans, and the other is technical, drawings, techniques, and other information that may or may not make it into a patent or that you may want to hold back as being secret. In Canada, these trade secrets or confidential information are generally protected through the tort or the concept of breach of confidence. And so unlike the other types of intellectual property you were referring to in your opening there, like trademarks and patents, this is, this is protected by case law that has developed over time that protects information that companies have protected themselves as being confidential. And so, Chloe, can you talk to us a little bit, though, from a court perspective? Um, what does a court consider to be a trade secret? Well, interestingly, because there's no statute, at least from a civil perspective, that defines what a trade secret is, courts have generally looked at different factors in determining whether or not something is a, is a trade secret or is confidential information for the purpose of making out the tort of breach of confidence. And those factors include things such as, one, has the owner taken measures to ensure that the information remains secret or confidential? And I think we're gonna get into some of that a bit later. Secondly, has the owner made it clear that he or she regards the information as secret? Thirdly, within the business, is the information only known to a select group of individuals? In other words, steps should be taken within the business itself to limit the number of people who have access to such valuable information. The fourth factor is then that the information itself has value to the business and to its competitors. And again, that could be technical information or pricing information. The courts will also look at 
at the expenditure of time, effort, and money that's gone into the development of the, of the information or concepts and whether or not the information is unique or novel. So there are really a number of factors that the courts will look at or that they have looked at in determining whether or not the information in issue is protectable as a trade secret or as confidential information. Now, I was saying earlier that there's no statute from a civil perspective, although Canada has recently introduced changes to the criminal code that will now provide a definition of trade secrets. Meredith, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, thanks, Chloe. So as you said, uh, the Canada-United States-Mexico Trade Agreement, or CUSMA, uh, came into force on July 1st of this year. And part of that, uh, Canada criminalized the theft of trade secrets. So the new section is Section 391 of the Criminal Code. And it says that a trade secret is information that is A, not generally known in the trade or business that may use that information, B, has economic value for not being generally known, and C, is subject to reasonable efforts to maintain its secrecy. So we don't have much case law on what this reasonable efforts will be, but we have a feeling it will draw somewhat on the common law and the civil courts, and, and we'll get into that reasonable efforts criteria later on in our conversation. Peniotta, I actually have a question for you because as litigators, mm -hmm. Meredith and I generally are involved after the fact or when there start to be concerns either that someone has taken our client's trade secret or that our client is being accused of taking someone else's trade secrets. And we know from our own work in the space that there's a distinction between trade secrets and patents and that a lot goes into figuring out what information should make it into which group. And so I'm curious to know from your perspective how that decision is made and, and what goes into that choice. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Chloe. And I guess there's hardly a discussion uh, that we have these days about trade secrets that doesn't involve patents and vice versa. Um, and probably a, a comment to begin is that, uh, you know, my view on an IP protection strategy is that everything requires balance. And, um, it, you know, oftentimes it, it really is a hybrid approach to all the different forms of protection uh, that, uh, that really work well in protecting a company's IP. And so when it comes to the choice between uh, trade secrets and patents, this is a bit of a debate these days on whether trade secret protection actually fills a gap um, for some, um, you know, for some of the uh, protection that obtained through patent protection. But you have to understand the protection that, uh, you know, how patents work and protection afforded by patents to really fully understand um, the choice that you're making. And so uh, patents are a monopoly um, that, uh, that are granted by a government. And the monopoly is granted uh, in, exchange, in exchange for the sharing of knowledge and information. And what that means is sharing of knowledge and information on your innovation to teach the world how to do what it is that you're claiming in your patent. Uh, and I say that because the underlying principle there is full disclosure. 
And for some companies, providing the world full disclosure on their innovation is an issue, even if they are successful in obtaining that 20-year monopoly on their invention. And so it is that reluctance to disclose the technology, uh, disclose that information in a patent, um, that may be a reason why trade secret protection is a better choice. There are a number of other reasons um, for uh, seeking you know, trade secret protection instead of patent protection. Uh, there has been um, a fair bit of change over the years in law in terms of what is actually patentable. And given that uncertainty, there is sometimes reluctance to file an application, fully disclose an invention, only to see that at some point in time, you may not be successful. And certainly there's a lot of due diligence that goes into the front end of um, determining patentability prior to filing a patent application. But I think that does weigh uh, on companies' minds when they have to make that decision. And then finally, there's, as, as you would know, um, certainly the cost of enforcement through patent litigation is something that weighs in the balance of that decision. And whether or not enforcement uh, of those rights through a patent infringement claim is really the route for enforcement that a, uh, a company is interested in. So that's really you know, quite high level, but those are the factors that contribute to, um, to that, uh, that thinking and that decision in terms of that IP strategy. So what internal efforts can parties and companies make to preserve their intellectual property in this context? Yeah, well, you know, for, for trade secret protection, you know, something is not a trade secret just because you want it to be, right? And and Chloe, you alluded to, you know, this at the at the outset when you provided a a bit of a foundational, you know, definition for trade secrets. Uh, you you actually said, you know, an owner has taken measures to ensure that the information remains secret. And so, a trade secret is not a trade secret just because you want it to be a trade secret. A trade secret is becomes a trade secret because you have taken measures to make it. Um, a trade secret. So what does that really mean? We talk more broadly about implementing trade secret programs uh, within a company. Uh, there are some really fundamental best practices and probably we can do an entire podcast on, um, on creating and implementing a trade secret pro program. But at a 50,000 foot um, uh, level, there would be first you established a culture uh, that embraces trade secret protection and understands it through education. Uh, you have to have a clear understanding on the types of information that your company considers to be trade secrets. And that's what is often referred to as a, um, uh, a, an audit, uh, an audit internally of the, the different categories of information that the company considers to be valuable and um, really coming together uh, as stakeholders in your company to decide what is valuable and all of the things that you mentioned, Chloe, at the outset in terms of how you would define a trade secret, um, but conducting that audit to really identify what's valuable, what needs to be protected, what provides that competitive edge, and then agreeing as a company that you will implement measure, measures to protect those predefined categories of informa information. Um, there is, uh, you know, the establishing of, a, uh, of an internal policy uh, in terms of the handling of information. And probably the last thing I would mention 
um, would be to make sure that your agreements with third parties as well as your employee agreements address the, um, the, the sensitive and confidential, uh, highly confidential nature of that information. So, you know, maybe Meredith, this is a good time to, that was sort of, you know, more of a discussion on the internal efforts that can be taken, but maybe Meredith, I can ask you to talk to us a little bit about the external efforts um, outside of a company that can be taken for such a trade secret protection program. Sure, and it follows the same sort of themes that you were, you were touching on, which is that you want to expressly say when you're providing a third party, so let's say a vendor uh, that you're working with or a potential purchaser um, that, that your company's working with, you want to, first of all, expressly tell them what's, com what, what's the confidential information that you're, that you're talking about. So you're, you're all on the same page. Um, but then once you identify what that confidential information is, um, you enter into an agreement with them that they're not going to disclose it to third parties. And then you take measures to ensure that at all times you maintain its confidentiality. So you know, put on a watermark on the document that says confidential in the email uh, where you transmit it. Maybe you have a two-prong email where you have one where you send the password to open the attachment and one is the actual attachment. So everyone knows this is very confidential. You don't copy or blind copy any third parties that you know don't necessarily need the information. Um, and, and there are all sorts of digital technologies that exist um, to ensure that documents that you don't want certain people to open can't open it. Um, so that's sort of on the on the very external point. And then this is something that you were talking about, Kenyatta, with the employees. When you hire someone, um, make and they're going to be in a position where they're going to have access to that that secret sauce, that confidential proprietary information in their employment agreement, you have that confidentiality agreement with them that again, stipulates what's the confidential information, um, how you protect it. Um, and then when that employee leaves the company, if that employee leaves the company later on uh, in their tenure, you remind that employee uh, when they're leaving that they have obligations to the company that exist after they leave the company that they can't go ahead and disclose that confidential information to, to any third parties, including new employers. Um, and, and I guess that, that kind of cuts both ways. So when you, if, if somebody's joining your company and they have that proprietary information, certainly you don't wanna be in a position where you're going to be uh, inadvertently getting that confidential information because you, you certainly don't want it. And I guess we're gonna be talking about that in, in a minute. Um, and, and I, I guess- just add Oh, go ahead, Panetta. I was I was just going to add that was a really good good point, and I like the way that you highlight the employee in and uh, potential departure of an employee because the truth is is reminding employees when you're hiring them of the uh, these obligations, um, and um, if they are departing, uh, the the exit interview is always a big topic of discussion um, in a trade secret program, and really putting those measures in place. Um, is is key. And just to jump off that last point about when when employees depart, certainly what I've seen in some cases is as part of 
uh, as part of a confidentiality or IP agreement that's signed up front, they will have to declare when they're leaving that they have returned all proprietary and confidential information. And I think that that's an additional step or precaution that can be taken when an employee who has had access to confidential information leaves a company. So Chloe, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. You have lots of experience uh, with this particular point, but um, tell me about arbitration clauses because you know our, they often come up in this context. So can you explain how they integrate with these internal and external efforts that we've been talking about? You're, you are right that that is near and dear to my heart. I, I think it's just something that's really important to consider. Um, when you're drafting an NDA or a confidentiality clause that involves um, where the specific dispute is likely to be about confidential information, that you think about having a private dispute resolution mechanism, likely arbitration, as the way to resolve any dispute, because the risk is that if you have to go to court, you risk that some aspect of the confidential information and issue may be revealed in court documents, which is obviously the exact opposite of the purpose of, of entering into the agreement and protecting the information. So I think that that's just something really important to consider. And I know that that's quite a detailed point, um, you know, for this podcast, but I, I do think that's something important to consider. So so we've defined, you know, we've talked about why, you know, trade secrets are important and we've defined them. We've talked about, um, you know, how to create a trade secret program. But, you know, businesses are always planning with the end in mind, right? So there are obviously a lot of measures you can take to protect uh, the, that information and avoid trade secret misappropriation. But things can go wrong. So let's talk about um, when things do go wrong. Can you give me some examples um, or sort of, you know, experiences that you've had when things uh, do go sideways? I think a helpful starting point is actually the point that we were just talking about in terms of employees joining a company or leaving a company, because that's actually in my experience, where I've seen the most litigation regarding trade secrets and confidential information. And I, I'll say I've seen it really from both sides. So in the first category, it's where our client um, has had an employee leave either to start a competing business of his or her own or to join a competing business and has taken confidential information, both financial information and technical information like drawings with him or her. And in that case, we will or have acted for our clients in seeking recovery of that information and damages in respect of the harm caused. I'll say in those cases, certainly from a client perspective, I think the most important part, if you catch it early, is actually trying to get the information back to prevent harm rather than seeking damages you know, two years down the road. And, and in one of the cases, actually, it became known to our client because of a forensic review of, of an individual's computer and emails. This individual had emailed himself uh, to his personal account uh, 
a number of confidential documents and information. And that was really helpful for them in, in being able to establish what had, what had happened and in being able to take very quick action. And then on the flip side, the second category is where our clients have hired somebody, usually a more senior uh, employee uh, or, or director of a, of a company with whom they compete. And that person or the company is then accused of having used trade secrets from uh, the, the former employer. I've also seen it in the context where our client has gone into business with someone who has hired a former executive from another company uh, that it competes with. And so it can, it can frequently happen where you, your, your company is sued because someone has alleged that you hired someone that has taken confidential information with them. And that's why I think some of the comments earlier about informing employees when they join that they cannot rely on confidential information from a former employer is so important. And I've seen litigation actually being used as an effective tool to protect uh, trade secrets on the departing employee side. So I was involved in a case um, where a senior software developer uh, who was involved in the company's uh, upcoming technology that was about to be launched that the company had been working on for, for quite some time, go and, and leave to work for an, a competing employer. And there was real concern that this departing employee was going to leave and, and share this with the, the new employer. And that would, if that happened, that would diminish uh, our client's advantage in coming to market with this new product. The new employer took these steps so that way it could do its best to prevent the departing employee from disclosing the confidential information. And the court really liked what the new employer did and they, and they thought those were uh, helpful steps in preventing it. So even commencing litigation, while not always advisable um, and, and depends on the context, can be used as an external tool just to ensure that everyone knows that, you know, don't touch this confidential information and we're taking it very seriously. This is very valuable. I was, I was just going to jump in on that last point because on the issue of notice, I actually think it's very interesting because for a third party, so the employer of an employee that's moved, for the, the third party to be liable for breach of confidence, they actually have to have notice that they are misusing or have received confidential information. Uh, so if let's say the employee says, I came up with this brilliant idea in discussions with you know, people here at this company, you know, maybe a savvy person would know, but who knows, maybe, maybe the company isn't aware. And so one thing I've seen actually recently in a number of cases is where a senior person has left a company, our clients have received letters basically putting them on notice that that person has confidential information. And there's not really been any time almost for any misuse at that point, but the, the, the company sending the letters clearly very concerned and wants to put our client on notice. So it sort of reminded, I was reminded of that when you were talking about litigation, because 
I've, my sense when I'm forwarded these letters by our clients is that these are, are really to put them on notice so that they could be held liable. But you're right that it also gives them the opportunity to take steps to make sure that, that they, they aren't. And so that's a, certainly a, an opportunity for them. I guess one more area before we leave this topic is just that it can breach of confidence or trade secrets litigation can also arise out of other types of business relationships. Uh, for example, in the sale of a business or in the context of ongoing commercial agreements. And we defended a large company that wasn't in the technology business at all, but had hired a technology vendor uh, to provide certain services. And when that contract came to an end, the technology vendor uh, made a claim against our client for basically taking the confidential information that it had supplied during the course of that agreement. So I think it's important to think about trade secrets, both protecting them and making sure that you're not uh, misappropriating trade secrets, really in the context of a number of different types of business relationships. I mean, I really like the examples that you guys have brought forward, and I think they, they hit home some of the best practices that I uh, that I mentioned earlier, and I think that there, of course, there are, there are others, but one in particular that I think is worth mentioning um, in light of all of that is, is really the importance of developing a plan on how to respond in the event of a breach. Um, and you mentioned, Chloe, early the opportunity uh, to mitigate the, the risk uh, associated with such a misappropriation by trying to pull back, uh, those weren't your words, but the information um, that, has been, um, that has been misappropriated. Um, and so I think really developing a, um, a response plan in the event of a breach is, is key to any, um, any, um, any uh, you know, program uh, of trade secret uh, protection. I think as well, I mean, the, some of the examples that both of you gave uh, just a little earlier on with reference to employees, I think also hits home the importance of having a, a tailored protection plan for incoming and exiting employees, but vendors and suppliers as well. We can't overlook third party uh, relationships and those agreements uh, that you put in place with them. So, you know, we've talked about where things uh, can go wrong and, and some really concrete examples on that. Let's talk about what actually happens when you're in litigation. And I think this is a really, a really great exercise for our listeners to go through uh, because when you want to avoid a risk, you have to understand how that risk actually crystallizes in my mind. So um, why don't we begin with that? And maybe Meredith, maybe you can talk to us uh, a little bit about you know, what, what's at the core of this, um, the issue, what's the fight about and how do you deal with it? Sure. So when you're in litigation for breach of confidence, um, there's generally a three-part test that you have to meet in order to succeed in your claim. And so that requires a, you, the plaintiff, show that one, the information conveyed was confidential, two, that it was communicated in confidence, and three, that it was misused by the party to whom it was communicated, um, which is... It's, fairly similar uh, to the sort of criminal provisions that I talked about earlier, but that's the, the test that's gone back from the, from the 80s and it, and it stayed as such. Obviously there's lots of case law interpreting it, but that's the, the core of it. Um, so 
you sue and you have to give enough information in the in the pleading that discloses sort of this is the confidential information that was disclosed without giving away the secret sauce so there's a real delicate balance and then often your parties litigating want to put in um, something called a sealing order meaning um, I want some of the information that I'm going to file in order to prove my case I want that uh, hidden from the public record because in Ontario and in, in most common law countries we have open court principles meaning you know you get to go to court pull up a court file see what's going on um, that information is public but in, in some cases you want certain of the information um, not in the public record because it would really undermine the point of the whole litigation exercise if you have to go and disclose the entirety of your trade secret in order to prove that your trade secret was taken. Um, and that's again why you, you might consider putting in arbitration agreements uh, when you're dealing in confidential information. So that way at least you're in a, a more private uh, adjudicative body. So this is not something that is rubber stamped in the courts. You have to actually prove that it's confidential and that there's economic value in keeping that uh, confidential. And, and there's real risk that if you, you do sue someone for breach of confidence and, and you don't get that sealing order, then what are you going to do next? Uh, because it, it will be difficult to prove your case if you can't get it. But um, if it actually is a trade secret, then you should be able to tell the court uh, successfully why you should be entitled to get that uh, sealing order. Okay, so what uh, sort of relief can we get in the in a trade secret dispute before the courts or, or the arbitration? One of the most important tools from my perspective in a trade secrets proceeding, if you're on the plaintiff side and looking to stop someone from ongoing misuse before the end of trial, so we refer to this as an interlocutory or interim order, is what's called an Anton Pillar order. And an Anton Pillar order is like a civil search warrant in that it allows you to show up at the residence or address of the other person or party to seize documents that contain the confidential information where there's a risk that that information could be destroyed. The thinking being that if the person destroys that, you won't be able to make out your case against them. Generally, Anton Pillar orders are a way of preserving evidence for trial in the sense that the real objective is to prevent the destruction of evidence if the uh, responding party were to have notice of what you were doing because all of this is done without notice. But the, the side effect or one of the impacts that's very powerful is that it actually takes the confidential information out of this person's hands. And so in this case I was referring to earlier where our client had seen that this individual had forwarded a number of emails to himself at his personal account, we were able to obtain an Anton Pillar order and, and show up at this person's residence to recover not only uh, electronic devices and email accounts that contained all of this information, 
but also to recover other documents that we didn't even know this person still had. And so it can be a very powerful tool because not only did that preserve evidence that might have been deleted, which would have prevented our ability from making it our case, but it also made it such that this person could no longer use it. And, and I will say that it's a, a high threshold. You need to have a very strong case in order to obtain this type of, of order. You also need to show the damage that would result and that this damage would be serious um, if, you, if you did not get this relief. And you have to have evidence that this person actually has confidential information and that they would be likely to destroy it. So in the case that I was speaking about, we had evidence one, that he had forwarded information to himself and that he had then deleted those emails in his work account in an attempt to try to mask what he had done. Now, of course, a forensic, uh, someone conducting a forensic in, uh, investigation can obviously find deleted emails. There's no such thing as really deleting an email, um, but that was the evidence that we used in that case. Separately from an Anton Pillar order, you could bring a motion for an injunction simply to prevent the person from misusing any confidential information before trial. Again, you'll have to establish that you have a strong case in order to be able to succeed on such a motion. I think that's, you know, those are some really practical examples of how this can play out when something does go wrong and you do end up in litigation. And I think that uh, that has been helpful for our listeners. I think this might be a, a, good, a good point uh, in the conversation to wrap it up, although there's so much else to say. Um, I think, you know, certainly what we are seeing is the value of trade secrets to businesses is really rapidly increasing. And so there's just so much more conversations about trade secrets in Canada. Um, and understanding how to preserve and protect them uh, internally and externally with a corporate trade secret protection program, uh, but also how to go about, um, you know, a, a, an event of misappropriation and uh, understanding where in fact things do go wrong. I think one last comment that I would make on all of this is at a practical level, probably um, one of the best best practices is in fact to limit access to confidential information on a need-to-know basis. I know that sounds so simple, but I think that that remains uh, key to uh, a risk strategy, a risk mitigation strategy rather uh, in this space. And so while other forms of IP protection are valuable, I think understanding uh, trade secret protection is key. Uh, to any IP uh, strategy. So I think with that, Chloe, Meredith, thank you so much for sharing your, your deep insights uh, in this space and taking the time to really drill down on some practical examples because I think uh, those have been, uh, have been really, uh, really helpful. So uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Denton's Canadian Intellectual Property Group has expertise that spans all areas of IP, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related disputes and litigation. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group 
would be pleased to speak with you about today's topic or any other IP topic of interest. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our IP series. Stay well.